0: to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Freddy Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 105th episode of the podcast titled Under the Skin, an analysis of Clash King's Brand 5, in which Jojen Reed further instructs Bran on prophecy and skin changing, as well as foreshadows his death at the hands of a new character. Reek? reek is that who it is reek in quotes of course you can't see us you have to imagine our fingers
1: carving furious quotes in the air around the word reek for this episode
0: yes indeed so as always this episode is brought to you by our small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester tim Bob, lord commander of the king's guard mark n lord travis master of ships and word of the waves Sir keith j master of whispers lord philip the merciful master of laws Archmaster june healer of the lesser poxes Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Micah, War of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the High Breed of Priest, Lord Jacob's Assistant, too, the Head of the King, Lady of Valyrian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Kalos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli, Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince, Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing, Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, LC the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Daydees, and Gentledhems, Lord Quint Esquire, master of absolutely positively not serving as a spy for several unnamed high lords and ladies in order to further the secret blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldivar, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Bronn, damp hair prophet of the Forsaken, and high priest of Euron Crow's High, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneras of House Colgary, the First of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Arthur, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shunmo the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoil, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Thank you, Counselors, very, very much. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler warnings, if we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is, the five novels, three decadent novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor Sample Chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from Azora High 5 a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Who was your favorite POV when you first read the series when you two were young and nubile? And who was your favorite POV now that you are, well, one of you, grumpy old men? What do you think it says about both the story and about yourselves? Well, I'm offended at the concept that we can or should mature. I was born perfect, a mote in Euron's eye, and so I remain. But what do you think, Jeff? Who, who was your first POV when you first cracked A Song of Ice and Fire in the wake of uh, a Game of Thrones Season 2? And who's your favorite POV now?
0: Okay, so first of all, I want to know who's the
1: grumpy old one. Is that, is that supposed to be me? Clearly me, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm 95 and just cantankerous as all hell.
0: Well, that's why I have you doing all of Sir Grandfather's lines, or excuse me, the little grandfather's lines in The Clash of Kings for Josh's mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about here in a little bit.
1: Josh um, reads like if you combine Stoutler and Waldorf and then get rid of the humor. Yeah, there you go. That's totally,
0: that's not you though, man. You have a great sense of humor. Oh shucks. Oh, boy. So, my favorite point of view when I first went through the books was Jamie. Jamie Lannister be, was my favorite point of view, um, as you could tell, because I'm a 90s antihero. Uh, allegedly, according to, to some statements on Twitter and other, other elsewhere. I, I think it's interesting now, because we, we were talking about this right before we came on air in our mini episode, that uh, really Bran has been a, a surprising favorite of both of ours. And uh, surprising because Tyrion gets all of the love among favorite point of view characters in the Clash of Kings. And he's good. The, I mean, there are several Tyrion chapters that are great. But it's mostly just like consistently good material that you enjoy. It really explores George's conceptions of power and how he thinks that someone can play the Game of Thrones and can play it well at one level, at least in terms of how it's, it's actually day-to-day operation, not in terms of what it's actually the day-to-day operations are protecting and ser- serving on behalf of, which of course is Joffrey. But I think it that's interesting. But I think when we're looking at, Now, like I feel much more fulfilled when we're doing these these brand chapters, and that's kind of why I'm. That's kind of why I feel that brand might be the strongest point of view, at least in in Clash. I mean, I feel like we always used to be our joke when we were doing a Game of Thrones. Every week used to be my favorite. Oh, this is my favorite chapter in a Game of Thrones. This is a Game of Thrones prologue, my favorite chapter. This is a Game <laughs> of Thrones brand one, my favorite. now, But but nowadays, I haven't used that joke as much because I, I really honestly feel like each brand chapter has been successfully good. I think that brand two is just outstanding and brand three is equally, almost equally in my mind, outstanding. Brand four is really good. And this chapter, brand five, again, about four or five pages long in the book, we ended up doing practically 20 pages of notes on because it's mm-hmm. that Good, and that's that's really saying something. So I want to say that Brand might be my not my new favorite point of view because we're not that far into a Clash of Kings, but maybe it's as far as like my current love and my current romantic feelings are going that I'm feeling that Brand's my boy right now, and maybe it'll change. when We get to Jamie when we and, and maybe it'll change. When we get to Jamie in the Storm Swords, anyways. No. I've joined on enough. What about you, sir? Well, that's wonderful.
1: I've been enjoying these brand chapters, too. And I always I always enjoyed him, but I've been enjoying them at a much deeper level now that we've gone through them. I think when I first read the series, I don't think I was attached to the characters in particular as much as <laughs> I am now. I was much more attached to what was happening, just the events themselves. And so I I, th- I remember enjoying Catelyn's chapters the most, oh. just because of how much stricter dr- meant. Dr- dr- like, you have, you know, the early revelations when she's with Ned and she gets the letter from Lysa... And then we first see King's Landing through her, and she kidnaps Tyrion, and you get the battle, and Robber's Crown, and you get all the great stuff in Clash of Kings with Renly and Stannis. And then, of course, all the build up to the Red Wedding, which was just so wonderful and dramatic and compelling, even before the blood starts to flow. So, and, and I always, I think I enjoy her at a, at a, at a deeper level now, but I, I could, even when I was first kind of skimming through the series, just reading the plot, I, I appreciated kind of how different her perspective was, even if I couldn't really uh, put it into words. Nowadays, even though we've barely gotten to him in the Nauticast, I think I would probably say Davos overall Mm. is is the best POV in the Song of Ice and Fire. Just because of how well he's evolved, you know, from being a camera on Stannis to being someone whose ethical struggles are really central to the series and really speak to so much. What an exception he still is, not being from the noble class, but having risen high and trying to keep in mind where he came from. And that's just so beautifully done in his Dance with Dragons plots. And just, I, I just, I love every one of his chapters and there's a real, I think he's a character who's easily caricatured as just, like, he's just the good one. He's Mm -hmm. the one who doesn't have all the flaws that the other ones have. And he just, you know, he's just going to grab those finger bones and think of his duty to Stannis. And there is there is an element to that, especially in Clash of Kings when he isn't, you know, super developed, but... I think I think Davos has some re- real pain deep down in him. And if that doesn't register with a lot of people, it's because he it does a better job of dealing with it than most people do in this series mm. and in real life. I think Davos Seaworth is a great example of someone who has handled their pain effectively. And
0: that is an inspiring thing to read about. That's a really good answer, man. I think that's inspiring to hear because that's not a way that I've really considered Davos in the past, but I think it's true. I think George does a good job of doing a conservation in terms of his point of view chapters. in, in *A Song of Ice and Fire*, he's got three. In three to Clash of Kings*, he's got six. In *Storm*, he's got four. In *A Dance with Dragons*, and that's pretty light in terms of our major point of views because most of them have numerous chapters, much more, many more chapters than three, six, and three, six, and four. But that makes him special when he shows up on page and him dealing with his hurt and his his feelings in a mature way is inspirational. And should inspire us to be better people.
1: Well said, sir. So thank you so much, Azora. High five for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, early access to every episode,
0: special posts, and 25 bonus episodes. Yeah. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next Patreon-only episode voted on by our patrons Thank you to all 300 and I want to say 83 of you who voted. is coming your all's way starting the week of the 22nd of March. And it's going to be all about the Grand Northern Conspiracy. So we'll be getting deep in, on analyzing the GNC, whether it's true or not. And we'll be talking about so, so much more. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you can find that episode and all of our other special bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash not A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon for this week. When we last checked in with the Bran Stark, he had learned that his new friend, sad boy Jojen, may see the future in his dreams. Let's find out whether Jojen is indeed a magic sad boy in this synopsis of A Clash Kings Bran 5. Elbelly finds Bran at the forge with Mikin and informs the prince that there's been a bird from the king. Excited, excited, Bran asks if it's from Rob, which, yeah, it's from Rob. So, Alebelly carries Bran up to Lewin's chambers, and Bran finds Rickon and the Walters River waiting for him in his chambers. Major Lewin sent Alebelly away and closed his door. My lords, he said gravely, we have a message from his grace with both good news and ill. He has won a great victory in the west, shattering a Lanster army at a place called Oxcross, and has taken several castles as well. He writes us from Ashmark, formerly the stronghold of House Marbrand. Rickon wonders if Rob is coming home. He's not. And Bran asks if Rob beats Tywin. He didn't. He beat Stafford Lannister. Big Water says that Tywin's the one who matters, and Bran kind of agrees. Rickon, though, wants Rob to come home soon, and he could bring Greywind, Catlin, and Ned. Though he knew Lord Eddard was dead, sometimes Rickon forgot. Willfully, Bran suspected. His little brother was stubborn, as only a boy of four can be. Bran feels glad that rob is winning but he also remembers osha's words about rob marching the wrong way and that disquiets him on cue lewin then turns to the Frey boys and tells them that their uncle Stevron is dead he was wounded in the battle and though they thought it wasn't serious he had very mysteriously died just three days later Hmm, how did he possibly die we'll talk about that big water shrugs and says he was old and always complaining about being tired little water puts in that he was tired of waiting for lord Walter to die the Frey Boys get to argue about who will be the next heir, with Littlewater being wrong and Big Water being extremely fucking precise about who's next in line. It goes Ryman, then Edwin, then Blackwater, then Peter Pimple, then Aegon. It's really simple. Littlewater says that Ryman is too old with a bad belly. No way he'll be Lord Bright. I'll be Lord. I don't care if he is, Big Water said. Shocked, Lewin interrupts to tell a phrase to cut the shit and exhibit some fucking grief over their Uncle Stevern. So, little Walter pretends to be sad, but Bran knows they're not actually sad. He asks to be excused, and Lewin lets him go. But Hodor is busy down in the stable yard, so Osha gets summoned instead. On the way across the yard, Bran asks if Osha knows the way to the Wall and beyond the Wall. She does. Follow the ice dragon constellation, chasing the blue star in the rider's eye. Bran asks if there's giants and others and children of the forest north of the Wall, and Osha answers partially answers, and then dodges. She says that there are giants, she's heard of the show of the forest, and she asks why Bran is asking about the others. Well, have you seen a three-eyed crow, Osha? Bran asks. She hasn't seen that, and she's happy she hasn't. She leads him to the window seat so he can watch the goings-on in the courtyard below. A minute later, just a full minute later, Joja and Amir Reed enter Bran's bedchamber. Prince Bran asks them whether they heard about the birds, and Joja nods. It wasn't a supper like you said, Bran said. It was a letter from Rob. And... We didn't eat it, but... The green dreams take
1: strange shapes sometimes, Jojen admitted. The truth of them is not always easy to understand.
0: Bran asked Jojen to tell him about the bad thing they dreamed about, but didn't tell him back in Bran's fourth chapter in A Clash of Kings, and Jojen asks if he means that Bran believes him. Bran does. So, Jojen tells him that the sea is coming and will lap around the walls of Winterfell and how salt water will flow over the walls themselves. Floating atop that water will be men, Belly, Septon Shale, and Micken. Bran says these men have to be told, but Jojen sadly states their, that even if they're told, they can't avoid their fate. But now that Jojen has shown Bran his, Bran's got to show his now. Jojen sat on Bran's bed. Tell me what you dream. He was scared, even then, but he had sworn to trust them, and a Stark of Winterfell keeps his sworn word. There's different kinds, he said slowly. There's the wolf dreams... Those aren't so bad as the others. I run and hunt and kill squirrels. And and there's dreams where the crow comes and tells me to fly. Sometimes the tree is in those dreams too, calling my name. That that frightens me though. But the worst dreams are when I fall. You look down the yard, feeling miserable. I, I never used to fall before. When I climbed, I went every place up on the roofs and along the walls. I used to feed the crows in the burned tower. Mother was afraid that I would fall, but I knew I would never would. O- only I did. And now when I sleep, I fall all the time. Mira asks if that's everything, and Bran says, yeah, I guess so. And then Jojen calls Bran a warg. Bran asks what that means, and Jojen tells Bran that he's a warg, sca- shape changer, beastling. That's what everyone will call Bran when they find out about his wolf dreams, and they're going to call him names, be afraid of him, and maybe want to kill him too. Bran thinks back to old Nan and her stories, and he thinks that he isn't like that, though. It's only in his dreams. He's not really a wolf. The wolf dreams are no
1: true dreams. You have your eye closed tight whenever you're awake. But as you drift off, it flutters open, and your soul seeks out its other half. The power is strong in
0: you. I don't want it. I I want to be a knight.
1: A knight is what you want. A warg is what you are. You can't change that, Bran. You can't deny it or push it away. You are the winged wolf, but you will never fly. Jojen got up and walked to the window. Unless you open your eye. He put
0: two fingers together and poked Bran in the forehead, hard. Bran can't feel the third eye where Jojen poked him, and Jojen tells him he'll have to find it with his heart, unless he's a big-ass scaredy cat. Well, Bran's no big-ass scaredy cat. He ain't afraid of no dreams. Well, he fucking should be, Jojen sort of says. In dream, Bran can potentially see the past, present, and future. When the reeds leave, Bran tries opening his third eye, but it doesn't work. He doesn't know how. And in the days that followed, Bran tries warning the people in Winterfell that the sea was coming. Makin thought it was a joke. Shale says he's a good swimmer and wouldn't drown, but Elbele takes the warning seriously. Well, maybe seriously is the wrong word. He takes it a bit literally and refuses to bathe until six other guards threw him into a bath. Thereafter, he scouted Bran. And then Sir Roger Cassell returns to Winterfell with a prisoner. And shall we describe this very important, unimportant prisoner, shall we? Let's do it. His prisoner, a fleshy young man with fat, moist lips and long hair, was smelled like a privy, even worse than the had. Reek, he's called, Hayhead said when Brad asked who he was. I never heard his true name. He served a bastard Bolton and helped him murder Lady Hornwood, they say. Whew, the bastard Bolton is dead. Thank goodness crisis averted people. He had been caught doing something horrible in the Hornwood lands, and there was a significant casualty of Ramsay Snow's shittery. They had come too late for poor Lady Hornwood, though. After their wedding, the bastard had locked her in a tower and neglected to feed her. Bran had heard men saying that when Sir Roderick had smashed down the door, he found her with her mouth all bloody and her fingers chewed off. Lady Hornwood really deserved better than what the narrative gave her. I mean, it's a great narrative, but she deserved better. But the problem was that Ramsay had married Danella Hornwood, and that is causing complications in the North. Lewin thinks that Hornwood's marriage to Ramsay means that the Hornwood lands would fall to the Boltons, but Roderick believes that vows made at Swordpoint sword point aren't valid. But would Roose Bolton care about that, or would he care about the lands? Probably the latter. Anyways, they've kept this serving man of Ramsay's around because he's the only living witness of Ramsay's atrocities. But now Bolton and Manderly men are killing each other in the Hornwood Forest, and Sir Roderick Cassell doesn't have the men to stop the fighting. Roderick then turns to Bran and asks what the hell the boy was doing telling the guardsmen to stop bathing. So, Bran replies that Jojen Reed saw the sea coming in his green dreams, and Alebelly was going to drown. Lewin brings Roderick up to speed about Jojen's green dreams, casting some doubt over them, but then he mentions that raiders, who could they possibly be these raiders, are attacking the stony shore. The tall hearts are going to deal with them, oh boy, and Roderick thinks he's going to have to ride against these raiders too. Roderick then asks whether Jojen saw Roderick drowned, and Bran takes heart that this wasn't what Jojen dreamed. So, maybe they're not going to drown if they stay away from the sea? Question mark? <laughs> Bran says as much to Mira and Jojen that night, and Mira agrees. Jojen doesn't. The
1: things I see in green dreams can't be changed.
0: That made his sister angry. Why would the gods send a warning if you can't heed it? And change was to come. I don't know, Jojen said sadly. Mira puts in that Alebelly should fight, and so should Bran. Wait, Bran? He's going to drown? Suddenly realizing what she said, Mira, Mira tries dodging the question, but Bran turns to Jojen and asks what he saw in his green dream. Was he drowned? Nope, not drowned. Whew. Another grace averted, right?
1: I dreamed of the man who came today, the one they call Reek. You and your brother lay dead at his feet, and he was skinning off your faces with a long red blade.
0: Mira says she should head down into the dungeon and put a spear through Reek's heart, and yes, please, fucking do it! But Jojen says that the jailers will stop him, and they're not going to believe him either. No one can stop the future from coming. Well, then Bran will use his own guards. Alebelly and Poxy Tim and Hayhead, everyone is going down to the dungeons. Jojen's mossy eyes were full of pity.
1: They won't be able to stop him, Bran. I couldn't see why, but I saw the end of it. I saw you and Rickon in your crypts, down in the dark with all the dead kings and their stone wolves.
0: No, thought No. If I went away to, to, to Greywater or to the Crow, someplace far where they, where they couldn't find me.
1: It will not matter. The dream was green, Bran, and the green dreams
0: do not lie. And that is a Clash Kings Brand 5 and the return of Emmett's Jojo Voice, which I absolutely love. Wow. But I also love this chapter because, buddy, I gotta tell you, and everyone else who's listening, these brand chapters in Clash are so good. I know we say that every single time we do a brand chapter, but it's true. What did you think of this chapter, Ben?
1: Yeah, brand storyline on The Clash of Kings at this point feels just like a, a well-managed construction project. Every time we check in, George has added another floor, and it's all stable and up to code. Brand 5 builds on every single plot and character beat from Brand 4. Every scrap of imagery, every bit of political business going on in the background. By the end of the chapter, everything is in place, to fall apart with Theon's attack on the castle in Brand 6, after which our hero vanishes for a while before restoring and reconciling himself in Brand 7 at the end of the book. It is structural perfection.
0: Structure Perfection is exactly right. He put it really well with George adding floors to Bran's journey up to the pinnacle where he finally leaves the castle of Winterfell. And the lovely aspect of Bran's journey leading up to this chapter is how the political and magical transition from foreground to background take each other's places from time to time. You know, I'm thinking of Bran 1, 2, and 3, Now the daily happenings of Winterfell and the politics of the Harvest Feast are at the forefront until the end of the chapter where Bran works, summer or has some sort of dream inspired by the Three-Eyed Crow. Brand 4 is a whole chapter of Jojen Reed becoming Bran's magical mentor with only a very brief mention of what's occurring politically in the North. But here, in brand 5, we're moving into synthesis of the political and the magical. We start with the politics, then Jojen's magic side, but by the middle of the chapter, they're one and the same. Jojen's green dreams feed into Roderick promising to take Alebelly with him on campaign, but the prisoner that Roderick brings back to Winterfell Reek, big, big air quotes, feeds into Jojen's green dream about who will kill another big air quotes brand. George successfully synthesizes the George successfully synthesizes these themes of brand story to Clash of Kings. And as we've said several times in our analyses of and Clash chapters, we can interpret this synthesis of magic and politics as a microcosm for where George is taking the series as a whole. I
1: think that's exactly what's going on. We're seeing all these little details that stand in for these larger forces at work in the series. Brand 5 opens with Brand working the bellows with Micken. A detail I love. It shows that Brand has learned that all-important lesson about leadership from Ned. Know the men who follow you. And let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. This is a theme that links the coming-of-age stories of the young Starks to the larger movements of the story, the destruction of the Riverlands fueling the rise of the Brotherhood and the Sparrows, Danny's crusade against and conquest of the cities of Slaver's Bay, the others, the monsters on the margins with their zombie army. Don't ask your people to die for a stranger. Don't rule over them like a god. Do not make them slaves. These are the central issues in the political world of A Song of Ice and Fire. Bran will engage with them most directly regarding Hodor, and I'm curious to see how that works as connective tissue when Bran returns to the political world, and the books have a little more time and interiority than the show to flesh that sort of thing out. Here in A Clash of Kings, though, the point is that Bran is literally hands-on with the warm, pumping lifeblood of Winterfell, a metaphor for his evolution as prince and man, that he is, he is bringing Winterfell to life, he is keeping the heat going, he is engaged with the castle, he is the prince, he is the Stark in Winterfell.
0: And I had the chance to reread Brand's first chapter in *The Clash of Kings* before I came onto this podcast, and I forgot this detail that Brand prefers sitting in the window seat as opposed to being in the bed, which is he thinks back in Brand One he could not walk or climb or hunt or fight or with a wooden sword as he once had, but he could still look. He liked to watch the windows begin to glow all over Winterfell as candles and hearth fires were lit behind the diamond shaped panes of tower and hall, and he loved to listen to the direwolves sing to the stars. Again, beautiful writing on George's part, but it does illustrate a larger point. Bran is continuing to connect himself to the lifeblood of Winterfell by constant observation. He's not allowing his disability to disconnect him from the castle itself by laying in bed all day of being apart from what's going on in the castle. And that speaks to, again, Bran's value as a leader and George developing as the future King of Westeros or King of the North, depending on your interpretation of the endgame of Game of Thrones name He won't... He won't use his disability as a crutch to keep himself from being connected to the castle. And again, this is really a fascinating contrast between Bran and Tyrion and the royal family in King's Landing who consciously separate themselves out from their subjects by having a castle within the city of King's Landing. And that castle is separated out from the the straits of the small folk that are living within King's Landing. But that connection that Bran consciously maintains to Winterfell makes it all the more emotionally wrenching when you consider that almost all the people that Bran loves in Winterfell, all the people that he interacts with, he chats with in this chapter, they're all almost about to die. Or almost all of them are about to die, rather.
1: Absolutely. That's what gives it this bittersweet quality on reread. You have this wonderful opening note of Bran with Micken at the forge. And by the end of the book, Micken will be dead and the warm, pumping lifeblood of Winterfell will spill out on the ground, the castle broken in an active, careless obscenity by the Bastard of Bolton. Is it a coincidence that Jojen foretells Micken's death in this same chapter? That Ramsay is introduced in this same chapter? All the elements that speak to both Winterfell's doom and its restoration are swirling more than ever around Bran. Even Alebelly, the man who carries Bran upstairs from the forge, is foretold to die in this chapter. And I bring all this up because of how perfectly it fits with the news from Rob. How the Starks and Freys react to it, and how that fulfills Jojen's prophecy. Bran is thrilled to get a letter, not from the king, as Alebelly says, but Rob, as Bran says, his big brother. Bran loves Rob, and misses him, and is excited to hear from him, not the king. Rickon feels the same way. He wants Rob to come home, and bring Catelyn with him, and even Ned. It's all about family and grief and the age-old temptation to defy death that we talked about in the last brand chapter that we talked about a lot going through A Song of Ice and Fire. But that's not the nature of the missive that they have received from Ashmark. They've been written to by the King in the North, not Rob, The winner of Oxcross, not the young man who sobbed with Bran in the dark as their fingers intertwined back in Book 1. And that's the tone with which Maester Lewin delivers the news of the Battle of Oxcross, gravely, all my lords, to both the Starks and the Walders, fray. Because he's the political mentor, he's trying to show them, this is how you do it, this is how you deliver the news of a battle properly from a king to my young princes, my young lords. And of course, neither set of kids respond as he would hope. But they respond in opposite ways. The Starks long for their brother to return, instead of glorying in his victory. Now Sansa glories in his victory. She takes uh, refuge and, and pleasure in the news of Oxcross because that's all she can do. She's surrounded by enemies and must play a part, exulting only on the inside. She really needs this kind of catharsis. Her brothers aren't in the position of having to lie. They're surrounded by friends for the most part. They're just sad about the distance between them all. Meanwhile, the young Freys greet the news that their uncle Stevron died with a pitch-perfect comedy routine that tears the polite mask off the Game of Thrones, the one that Lewin is trying so hard to keep in place. Big Walder and Little Walder could not possibly care less <laughs> that a kindly relative they have lived with and known all their young lives has just died. All they care about is the game. All they care about is that everyone in the endless line of succession at the Twins has just taken one step forward. And you know the adult phrase talk like this too. That's confirmed in the one and only chapter told from a Frey POV, Merritt's Epilogue in A Storm of Swords. But they mostly know better than to talk like this around the Starks, the primary POVs on the phrase, Except for Big and Little Walder. Because they're kids. They're too young to know better, so they just say it. (laughs) Little Walder directly states that the viper's nest infighting at the twins has produced people who are all just waiting on each other to die. Stevron died waiting for little Lord Walder to die. And now little Walder zeroes in on Ryman's belly as his weakness. Here's how we're going to wait for him to die. Big Walder, meanwhile, has the inheritance order laid out in his head like snakes and ladders and openly declares that he will be Lord of the Twins, despite being like 385th in line. (laughs) This is quite a bold statement, and while many of the people ahead of him are considerably older than he is, like Ryman, so you could charitably so, he's saying saying they're going to die on their own. But Little Walder is the same age, and he's ahead of Big Walder in the succession. So Big Walder is basically saying out loud to his cousin's face that he intends to murder him three Mm -hmm. books before he goes ahead and does it. But no one picks up on it. In part because Big Walder is a tiny squeaky voice child. You don't take him seriously when he says he's going to murder someone. <laughs> and that's why I love him. That's what makes him such a great tertiary character. He just pops up every so often to say, remember me? I'm the tiny demonic child from The Omen who's going to take everything over <laughs> one day. It's great. And, it's you know, of course it also gets overlooked because that's not what Lewin focuses on. His ambitions that are being revealed. What Lewin focuses on is the sheer heartlessness of of their reaction, the lack of grief, their refusal to treat Stevron as a person instead of just a pawn in the Game of Thrones. And then Little Walder pretends to be sad. Oh, yes, we're very sad. That's what humans say, right? <laughs> but it's about as convincing as when he pretended it to be remorseful after Lewin caught them bullying Hodor in an earlier Bran chapter in this book. The Starks are lost in grief. The phrase can only pretend to feel it. The families are perfect contrasts even before the phrase turn on the Starks at the Red Wedding. That's what all of this is building to. The one thing the kids have in common here is a conviction that Oxcross is ultimately a minor victory because it was against Stafford, a total nobody, instead of Lord Tywin. Now on one hand, this is a childish reaction. Like the death of the commander matters less than the destruction of the army. And Tywin is once again dancing to Rob's tune. On the other hand... Both Bran and Big Walder have keen instincts for children, and they are right that the fighting does not stop for their side until Tywin, specifically, is captured, killed, or forced to surrender. Catelyn came to the same conclusion earlier in the book. And when she learns about Robb's victory upon her return to Riverrun, she acknowledges it with a weary nod and moves on, further undercutting the triumph. And all of this contributes to a tone of dread and prophetic awareness that this victory... Will not be enough to stave off Rob's downfall. Catelyn puts it best at the Battle of the Fords. But if we are winning, why am I so afraid?
0: Really well said, yeah. Why is Catelyn so afraid? It's sort of nebulous about the fear that she's feeling, and she's been feeling this fear since her very first chapter in A Game of Thrones. But Bran's fear for Rob and for himself is a bit less nebulous. He repeats that line from Osha in A Game of Thrones. They're marching the wrong way, my boy. And Bran is now thinking that in the context of Robb's victories. Of course, Bran does obviously fear for his brother's life. He loves his brother. And he and Rickon want their family back. Yet the unstated fear is that when the Heart of Winter strikes south, the protectors of the North will be far away, or heaven forbid, dead, and unable to save the people and Bran. And just to make Bran's fears explicit, it's not just subtext here. Bran asks Osha about the Others the Giants and the Children of the Forest after he's heard about Rob's letter from Lewin. Brand's macro fears about the apocalypse are tied to his wanting his family to be back together. And that's a hmm. d- distinguishing aspect to how Stark. The lone wolf dies, the pack survives. And that wolf pe- and that wolf pack mentality extends outward from family onto castle, region, and then country. It becomes more and more apparent in my mind because again, I, I read through Clash of Kings Brand 2 before we came on air. Why Brand is our point of view to the Harvest Feast. I, I think we can trace a bit of the origins of the Harvest Feast in, in the North to why the North survived the others during the first long night. That kind of modern, secular holiday illustrates the ethereal idea of the North working at communitarian purposes to stave off the apocalypse. And to help remind Brand of his ethereal, magical purpose, who show, shows up immediately after Ocean Departs but sad magic boy Jojin Reed?
1: so well said sir across the board that was great and yeah the other big takeaway for Bran from the news has to do with Lewin's opposite his new magical mentor Jojen Reed who saw this coming in a dream Jojen saw the news as meat dripping red and rare for Bran and Rickon old and gray for the Freys yet the latter liked the taste of their meal more in other words the Freys feed on death That's what empowers them. That's what excites them. That's what motivates them. The ugly meat, like that which they will serve to their victims at the Red Wedding. Whereas even good meat, a.k.a. victory, the corpse of Stafford and his army, doesn't taste good to Bran and Rickon. Because they don't want death. They want life. They want the people they love walking back through Winterfell's gates one day. And the Battle of Oxcross just doesn't make that happen for them. Whereas the Battle of Ox Cross does make the phrase dreams comes true because all they want is for their relatives <laughs> to die. <laughs> this meat imagery also dovetails with Bran's own dream world. The dripping red meat he tears into as Summer in his wolf dreams. The blood he kind of feels in his mouth during his uh, waking life now. As in Bran 4, Bran is struggling to understand his relationship to death, violence, war, and how all of that fits in the context of his family, his pack, and his own growth. And once more, we are seeing the political and magical worlds coming together in the Clash of Kings. How the young Starks and Freys react to their secular mentor telling them about a battle confirms the revelations from the sorceress mentor predicting how they will react. So when Bran returns to his chambers after meeting with Lewin, as you say, it's perfectly spooky. Jojen just emerges like seconds later, as if summoned, as if knowing it's his turn in this dialectic unfolding in Bran's soul. Bran feels, appropriately, ambiguous about this, two ways. He feels sickened, as he says, by the sheer force of the revelation that magic dreams are real, that Jojen was telling the truth. That is not an easy thing to swallow. But he's also excited to learn more, because this is the stuff of the stories and songs he loved before the fall. You're in a story now, Bran. This is your life. And once again, we see the Brand jojen dynamic take the form of a pact, an exchange of information rooted in mutual honesty and trust, Allah, the first man and the children, because that is what we're seeing here, right? Okay. This is the relationship between the first first man to ever make contact with the children of the first forest, the first one to ever tell them about their dreams, the first one to have this magic in common. We're seeing a version of that with Bran and Jojen. Jojen's legitimacy has now been established. Bran's doubts have been banished, and so he and we are primed to take to take the Green Boy seriously. When he tells us that the sea is coming, it's like the stark words, Winter is coming, the sea is coming. Mm. It's an apocalyptic vision of death, following on the heels of the meat delivered by feasting crows from the battlefront in Jojen's last green dream. And how chilling is it that Aylbelly, the man who introduced Jojen and Mira to the Great Hall, and thus the reader back in Brand Three, is on the list of those drowned. It's as if by welcoming the reeds to Winterfell he sealed his own doom. Mm. But before we dig more into Jojen's prophecy, we have to talk more about Bran. Because Jojen offers his vision as a lure to get Bran to finally talk about his dreams. Bran is still afraid, but as Dad said, that's the only time you can be brave. His political side, the Stark in Winterfell, Ned Stark's son, that voice in his head, demands he keep his vow and talk about his dreams. So he tells them, all of them, all his dreams. The wolf dreams, the tree dreams, the falling dreams. Bran separates these out as distinct categories in his head, and they are separate in terms of how much Bran is in control of each one, in terms of the emotions they invoke in him. But if you take them all together, what they speak to is a childish exaltation in power, the running and hunting he's denied in the waking world, but also an awareness of the limits on and demands of that power. The fall constantly reminds him of how he got this power, and the tree and the crow are constantly reminding him of the responsibilities that go along with it. Jojen has come to drag that dynamic into the waking world and force Bran to grow up, both in terms of accepting his powers and also reconciling them with reality, because Jojen has is here to educate Bran about his powers, but also to educate him about public reaction to it. They'll call you names and hate you, the people you love so much, the people who work the bellows with you, who carry you up the stairs.
0: They'll try to kill you. Which is kind of the story that we hear from Verimir in the Dance of Dragons prologue. People... Fear Veramir. Some try to kill him. Some heroes try to come to come into the village and kill him. All for simply being a warg, right? That's all they want to kill him for is just simply being a magical force in the world. No, no, it's not. It's how Veramir uses his power, as we see in that *The Dance of Dragons* prologue. Veramir uses his magical ability selfishly and becomes a monster himself as a as a result. The mission for Bran and what Jojin is attempting to instruct Bran in is how he's supposed to be better than the forebears who went before him, who are currently existing in the world of Westeros. He has to use that power for good. With great power comes great responsibility. You guys know the phrase, people. I mean, uh-huh. George, George, George is a fan of Spider Man, so I think we can, we can safely assume that this was inspiring some of what is going on with Bran's story in A Clash of Kings, on through A Dance of Dragons. Sure, how to use power responsibly
1: is absolutely a huge part of Bran's story. And a lot of what he's doing is learning how to link the political and magical worlds. Bran's burgeoning powers aren't happening in isolation. That's what Jojen's telling him here. Warg, shape-changer, beastling. Better get used to hearing these words, kid. Because these changes that are happening to you are happening in the context of the secular world of Winterfell. The world of Maester Luwin and Sir Roderick. And this world may not treat you kindly once it figures out what you can do. But on the other hand... You know, this doesn't really happen in Bran's story, right? Like, we see in this chapter that Lewin and Roderick aren't freaked out by Jojen's dreams. They're at most exasperated by them. Like, the, the little that Bran and his companions encounters in the Storm of Swords doesn't seem weirded out by the reeds or the presence of the dire wolf. So, and what part of me is like, is this just George having a mentor say a mentor thing? Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is the kind of thing, like kind of like Quaith's cryptic things. It's like, these are just, like, things that this kind of character is supposed to say more than it is rooted in the character, but on the other hand, to be more charitable about it. (laughs) What I think might be happening here is that Jojen is trying to make sure that Bran trusts him and only him. Mm. I think Jojen might be trying to get Bran to be afraid of everybody else because that's going to make it really easy for Jojen to spirit away the heir to Winterfell beyond the wall to the far-flung, you know, frozen fairy fort where Bloodraven lives (laughs) because Lewin and Roderick might not be on board with that. It's telling that the only adult who takes all this seriously is Osha. And she leaves with Rickon at the end of the book. She is no longer an influence on Bran. Bran is left with Jojen. And Jojen has Bran's best interests in mind, mostly. But is also pressuring and manipulating and even scaring the kid into doing what Bloodraven wants him to. And, of course, he also delivers some just good old-fashioned mentor talk, fitting into the maturation cycle of the hero's journey. A knight is what you want. A warg is what you are. You have to open your third eye. A source of not only power, but, as Jojen says, truth. The journey inward that must mirror the journey outward for any good hero. You have to not only change the world, you have to change yourself. In fact, you probably have to change yourself first if you're going to change the world. And Bran immediately puts this to the test in the physical world, the grounded political world of Winterfell by talking to the people Jojen saw in his vision about the fact that they were drowned. And they all represent different reactions to this threat, to prophecy and magic and how to deal with it. Micken just finds it funny. He treats it as a joke. Oh, the sea's coming to me. Well, how nice of the sea. <laughs> I'll have to get ready for it. Chael treats death more solemnly than that, but he still isn't afraid. He's just trying to be respectful to Bran. And while Alebelly takes it more seriously, that is uh, swiftly played for a joke by George. Like he's not washing and screaming about, oh, the frog boy said the sea is <laughs> going to come. Get- it's, it's not being presented as a grave threat in the text. It's being shown as a joke. And that is George showing you that this is not going to be easy for Bran to solve. Like Jojen says, it's not always easy to get people to believe, especially since the visions, you know, might not come true if they did. And this is these are all gaps that Bran is going to have to bridge. Like Jojen is a little too self-satisfied and a little too helpless. And I think Bran has to strike out into this unknown frontier
0: and I think solve more than he can. That's a great point. I I agree that that Bran has to be the person that is going beyond Jojen's inability to solve the problems and be the problem solver, not just be the deliverer of information. And if we recall from Bran's fourth chapter, Bran does reject Jojen's prophecies before getting confirmation in this chapter, the start of this chapter, that they're true. And now he's recognizing in Bran's fifth chapter that Jojin can genuinely see the future in some way. It's interesting to me, though, that Bran was able to distinguish that Jojin's vision about the gray meat versus the bloody meat was a metaphor at the start of this chapter. But here, Bran takes Jojen's statements about the sea coming to Winterfell and opening his third eye really, really literally. Which then leads to Jojen pulling a gentle version of the three-eyed crow's pecking and tearing up the middle of Bran's forehead by then poking Bran in between the eyes, telling him to open that third eye. And what does Bran think? When he raised his hand to the spot, Bran felt only the smooth, unbroken skin. There was no eye, not even a closed one. How can I open it if it's not there? Bran asked. Jojen, then feeling exasperated, tells Bran to open his throat with his heart. It's not literal, Bran. Come on. These are prophecies, (laughs) visions. Don't take it so literally. And I believe I want to say this is metal on George's part being like, you know, some of the things I'm embedding into the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire don't take them so goddamn literally, YouTubers. Anyways, um, brands then shifting viewpoints about Jochen's green dreams then get reflected in the people of Winterfell, as you were talking about, making laughs it off. Shale is, takes it seriously, but says he's a strong swimmer, so he's not going to drown. And then Alebelly takes Brand's warning extremely, literally refusing to bathe for fear of drowning. And I understand all these viewpoints, rational and irrational reactions to prophecy, are precisely what... I would do if confronted by a vision of the future or someone claiming to know the future. One that also seems more true as time progresses. And you had mentioned this before, but when Sir Roger Cassell shows up, even Maester Lewin has to admit that Jojen's visions do seem to coincide with the troubles occurring in the North. And there are many troubles that are now unfolding all of the North.
1: Mm-hmm. The political half of Bran's story returns to prominence when Sir Roderick returns to Winterfell, bringing with him an important prisoner who is not as he appears. And the, the Reek-Ramsey twist, in which Ramsey disguises himself as his servant Reek, but then reveals himself as Ramsey at the end of the book, inspires a great deal of confusion because of how quickly it happens at the end of A Clash of Kings. And that's not in, that's not helped by how the show executed the end of Theon's story in Season 2, because they, they wanted to keep Ramsey's identity a secret in Season 3, so it ended up confusing <laughs> a whole bunch more people in terms of what exactly happened here. But, once you fight your way through the confusion... This is one of my favorite twists in the series. The reveal itself blew the top of my head off my first time through a Clash of Kings. I remember so distinctly finding this out. It's so memorable that it kept Ramsay vividly in my mind all those years until he showed up again in A Dance with Dragons. And it's a trip to come back and see all the groundwork being laid for it. On reread, The Bastard of Bolton, still nameless at this point by the way, we don't hear Ramsay being mentioned for quite a while, the bastard of Bolton, he's been built up too much to be simply killed unceremoniously off-screen. Even as we're being told about his death in this chapter, we get an unshakable image of his crimes, the fate of poor Danella Hornwood. It should set off all our alarms as readers that such an intense villain whose crimes are being lingered over and discussed so much has been casually swept aside before he even made an appearance. We should immediately be able to tell that something is off here, but George immediately distracts us to keep that surprise in his back pocket. This person, Reek, this servant who ran around with the Bastard of Bolton, he was mentioned by Lady Hornwood herself in an earlier brand chapter, so his presence isn't suspicious for a first-time reader. I think that helps. We do have a character to fixate on. We think, oh, this Reek character. <laughs> oh, he was the important one from that storyline, we're supposed to think. Oh, we weren't supposed to fix it on the Bastard of Bolton. I wonder what this Reek person will be involved in. <laughs> That's what George is giving us, this fig leaf, someone else to focus on so we're not suspicious that the Bastard was killed off. Moreover, Roderick and Lewin shift the discussion from the bastard himself to the larger ripple effects, and here is where we see George's masterful structure at work running underneath the surface of A Clash of Kings. As Sir Roderick puts it, the monster has tied us in a thorny knot, and what a knot it is! Sir Roderick doesn't even know the full extent of it yet, and he only will as he dies. Ramsay, in his rise to power so far, has combined brutal violence with the Moors of feudal society to climb the ladder. He both breaks and follows the Hmm. rules. That's why he's so dangerous. On one hand, he kidnapped Lady Hornwood. He wedded and bedded her by force. As Maester Lewin points out, she only named him heir at sword point. This is transparent fraud and theft of land as well as rape and murder. Winterfell must stop this to be an authority worthy of the name to live up to the image of those earlier brand chapters like the Harvest Feast that you were talking about. But once the fig leaf of marriage and inheritance is established, Lewin and Roderick become powerless to make any real changes. Their hands are tied because the forms were followed. The rules were established. They were just inflicted in the most violent way possible. And this is what makes Ramsey interesting. He isn't just pure chaos. He has a crude but effective understanding of how to hijack the power systems around him, just like Euron will later hmm. in the series. Ramsay has exposed a lot of those systems' weaknesses here. The institution of marriage that is supposed to protect women has destroyed one, the cloak of her husband's protection tightening like a noose around Danella Hornwood's neck. The institution of land inheritance which is supposed to provide for a smooth transition of power has here sparked a civil war in the Hornwood forests. This is not to say that these institutions never produce good outcomes nor that people like Lewin and Roderick who believe in these institutions are inherently bad people. What I am saying is that these bedrock institutions and these well-meaning people have no answer for a
0: person who operates in the way that
1: Ramsey does.
0: Yeah, that's very, very true. Ramsey was breaking and utilizing institutions for his own benefit. And I I also want to say, too, that the cunning way that Ramsey has tied these well-intentioned men in knots, to me it reads a little bit more than meets the eye. I mean, there's a fascinating line that Roderick says about Reek in this chapter where he says, would that I could take the serving man's head off as well. He's as bad as his master. This is just me thinking here, and I don't know if this is what George is actually thinking, but I think this is kind of George's famous subtlety at work here. Ramsey is just as bad as his master, namely his father, Ruth Bowles. Mm. Ramsey kidnapping Janella Hornwood and forcibly marrying her all seem in keeping with, as Stephen Atwell would put it so well in our analysis of a brand's second chapter, as a disorganized psychopath. And we see that in full force at the end of A Clash of Kings and throughout Theon's chapters of The Dance of Dragons. You can kind of see his mentality, I want to be lord, so I'll kidnap Donella Hornwood and force her my way into a lordship. But the action of Danella then writing a will and assigning Ramsay as her heir reads as a much more calculated political act. It's the paper shield that grants that fake leaf of legitimacy to Ramsay's monstrous and illegal act. And that seems more in keeping with how we see Roose Bolton playing the Northern Game of Thrones. In Storm, Roose Bolton asks the Iron Throne for a royal writ from King's Landing with Tommen's signature that names him as Lord of the North, betrothes Ramsay to Arya, and also legitimizes Ramsay as a Bolton. Now, as we're going to explore in significant depth as we learn more about Roose Bolton in Catelyn and Arya's latter in Catelyn and Arya's latter clash chapters, I don't think that this is evidence that Roose Bolton has turned has been turned by Tywin yet. It's rather that Roose Bolton is using the War of the Five Kings to advance Bolton interests in the north by simultaneously endangering northern houses, lords and heirs in battles in the south, as we talked about back in episode 62, Game of Thrones, Tyrion eight, while simultaneously using Ramsay as the violent cudgel to increase Bolton holdings and power in the north. You're making a great point about all these, these, these
1: subtle hints as to who Ramsey is and what he's really talking about is just woven into all the dialogue around him. Like when he first shows, first shows up and hey, it says, Reek is what he's called and he hasn't heard his true name. Mm. It's like, no, you have not heard his true name yet because it's not Reek. <laughs> yes. It's Ramsey. And as you say, all of this is made worse by the larger war unfolding in Westeros. None of this happens if Rob and Roos are still here. If Lord Hornwood and his son are still alive. It is precisely this context that allows Ramsay to pull off this gambit, disguising himself as Reek, because in peacetime, this wouldn't be enough to save his life. Why? Because there would be an adult Stark in Winterfell with the authority to not only deliver justice to quote-unquote Reek, but also to settle the dispute over the Hornwood lands right then and there. But right now, as it stands, Rob is in the south. So too is Roose, who may now lay claim to Hornwood territory, and Lewin and Roderick can't settle this on their own until Rob and Roose come back. That's not only true in legal terms, it's also true in military terms. With Rob having taken the bulk of their strength south, Roderick can't contain the fighting between the Manderley men and the Bolton men. As Stephen Atwell said in his essay on this chapter, Roderick can't contain fighting between the Dreadfort and the White Harbor because a lot of the men he'd rely on to stop fighting would be from The Dreadfort <laughs> and White Harbor. These are the two most prominent houses in the north besides the Starks It's really hard to stop them fighting each other and this is why Roderick can't execute Reek The man who will later kill him even though he desperately wants to and this is why Ramsey's gambit works Because Roderick needs a witness to the bastard's crimes. He needs proof that despite the fig leaf of marriage and inheritance, which would be the basis of Ru's claim to the Hornwood lands, the bastard acted outside acceptable norms. If Roderick executes quote-unquote Reek, then the Boltons might easily end up with Hornwood territory, or mm-hmm. the Boltons and Manderleys might just forever end up fighting each other around it. He needs a witness. The northern political and cultural systems that we have been exploring in these brand chapters have always had the weaknesses we are talking about. But they were largely invisible in peacetime with an adult Stark in Winterfell, like rocks lurking under the surface of the water. When the tide goes out, when the Stark and Winterfell is a child, and the bulk of the lords and armies are away, these invisible weaknesses suddenly take hold. As you were saying earlier, George sets himself the task in Brand 5 of fully integrating these political and magical developments in Brand's chapters. Lewin brings up Jojen's prophecies in response to Sir Roderick chiding Brand playfully about belly stench. And Lewin, as always, is skeptical but fair. He has to admit that there is some evidence for Jojen's vision of danger from the sea. There are raiders burning their way up and down the stony shore. Now, the reader knows that's Theon, (laughs) even the first time through, even before we get to Theon three and see him doing it, so we immediately
0: sense the danger. Right, and the, the Ironborn attacks are dangerous, and they're made all the more dangerous by the lack of analysis that Lewin and Roderick are applying to the situation. Sea raider in quotation marks is a frustratingly ambiguous term. I mean, any idea who these mysterious sea raiders might be? No? <laughs> well, why the fuck not? I mean, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence here besides Lewin and Rogers, of course, but the geography of the, <laughs> the, geography of the North should be a pretty big indication about who is actually raiding the Stony Shore. There is a solid body of land separating the Stony Shore from any potential raiders coming from Essos. You know what that body of land is called? It's called Westeros, guys. And which culture has a history of seaborne raids against Westeros and the north? Why, it's the Ironborn. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that knowing the identity of these raiders would prevent Theon and his reavers from inflicting war crimes along the Stony Shore, Torn Square, and then later Winterfell. But I am saying that recognizing it's the Ironborn attacking may elevate the threat status of these attacks from quote-unquote raids to quote-unquote existential threats to the north. And (laughs) And while I'm not sure that the Boltons and Manderlys would stop pointing swords at each other and focus on the greater threat of the Ironborn, we do see how smarter political actors use the Ironborn threat in A Dance with Dragons. Bruce and Stannis used the optics of their campaigns against the Ironborn at Moat Kalen and Deepwood Mott respectively, respectively to unite the North against a common threat and under their own banner. Could Roderick and Lewin maybe have done something similar if they were investing the full power of their office at hand? I mean, I, again, I don't know precisely, but I'd like to think that this would be something that would unify the North against a common external threat, namely invasion by the Ironborn.
1: It's so frustrating but so appropriate that Lewin and Roderick, Bran's rational political mentors, come so close to interpreting Jojen's magical vision correctly but can't quite do it. They make the connection between the sea and the raiders attacking the shore, but they miss the crucial detail in the vision that the sea is coming. It's coming for Winterfell. So Roderick leaving Alebelly behind when he rides out against the Ironborn ends up guaranteeing the poor man's death when Theon attacks the castle. And that's what Jojen means when he says there's no exit from the dictates of prophecy. Your attempt to escape it will be what brings it about. We'll see the same thing with Stannis regarding the vision of quote-unquote Renly breaking his host at King's Landing. There's also a dreadful irony on Reread when Roderick takes comfort from the fact that Jojen didn't see him drowned. Because it's not the Ironborn that Roderick has to worry about, it's the Bastard of Bolton. Both of them, as he says, emboldened by the power vacuum that Robb left behind. And all of this feeds so perfectly into Jojen's new nightmare, which ends the chapter. A hideous vision of Reek skinning Bran and Rickon, and the Stark boys winding up in their family crypt. Again, George is dropping a clue to Reek's true origin, the flayed man of House Bolton. Ramsay is a skin changer too, just in a different way. He inhabits Reek's persona, just as Bran will literally inhabit Hodor's body, and he traps Theon inside that same persona by flaying him. Always these same questions, what's behind the mask? What's under the skin? Just as Ramsay isn't really Reek, those two boys in Jojen's vision, being skinned, aren't really Bran and Rickon. They're the Miller's boys, they're placeholders, peasant boys like Hodor and Reek, the original Reek, forced to stand in and die for their social betters. Like the man Wyman Manderly has killed in place of Davos in A Dance with Dragons. Or like Jojen, dying for Bran to be the hero, the protagonist of reality. They are whipping boys, like Pate for Tommen. They suffer, so you don't have to. Now as a lapsed Catholic, I think George is taking a two-sided approach to themes like this. On the one hand, you have the very sincere religious imagery captured in in Jojen's prophecy. What he thinks is Bran and Rakan dead is actually Bran and Rakan alive in the crypts, from which they will be reborn after three days (laughs) down in the dark. You see the Christian imagery there very, very strongly. But George, being a little more skeptical and hesitant these days, is also very hesitant to just outright sanctify suffering. We'll see that with Melisandre and Davos in The Storm of Swords when Melisandre says, Oh, your sons, you know, everyone had to die in the black water and that cleansing righteous fire so, so Stannis would be more humble and heed my advice. And Davos thinks to himself, were my sons no more than a lesson for a king? Like, he rejects this idea that, that people's lives can be just seen as, as coin, as stepping stones for the more important people. And this world of disguise and sacrifice, of hidden lives, hidden deaths, hidden pain, is what has enabled Ramsay's rise with Lady Hornwood, and it will define his reign over the North. Even as George gestures at the Ironborn with one hand in Brand 5, the other hand is busy setting up the Bastard of Bolton as the true villain of the Northern storyline in A Clash of Kings. Both of these threats are expressed in The Green Dreams, even as they disguise the truth in elusive, elusive imagery. And the green dreams do not lie.
0: That's excellently said. And I think, you know, George's Catholicism, as you were putting it, comes out really strongly here. The one distinguishing aspect in defense of Catholicism, Christianity as as a whole, is that Jesus opted, if you believe the Gospels, voluntarily to die on behalf of the world. These men and boys are not volunteering to die on behalf of Bran, on behalf of Stannis, on behalf of these various characters. They're being forced that way by various forces in by various powers within Westeros in order to feed that narrative going forward. And that's, that's a distinguishing aspect, but I think it is really strong on George's part to kind of bring that Christian imagery in here and adapt the skeptical eye to it. And that's kind of the same skepticism, though. We should be taking a little bit with, with Jojen, really. Remember how Bran started to take Jojen's statements about the third eye and the sea coming to Winterfell, literally? Guess who takes that green dream a bit literally at the end of this chapter? It's Jojen. And that kind of brings in my mind a, a quote that George had in a 2012 interview, which he talked about prophecies, which he said they're a double-edged sword. You have to handle them very carefully. I mean, they get add depth and interest to a book, but you don't want to be too literal or too easy. In the Wars of the Roses that you mentioned, there was one lord who had been prophesied that he would die beneath the walls of a certain castle, and he was superstitious at that sort of walls. So he never came anywhere near that castle. He stayed thousands of leagues away from that particular castle because of the prophecy. However, he was killed in the first battle of St. Paul to Vence, and when they found him dead, he was outside of an inn whose sign was a picture of that castle. And then it's mentioned that George laughs. So you know why? So you know, that's the reason prophecies come true in unexpected ways. The more you try to avoid them, the more you are making them true. And I make a little fun with that. So the sea flowing over the walls of Winterfell and dead drowned men floating in the castle yard opening the third eye are easy prophecies for us as readers to interpret, especially in a Rebreed podcast. It, but it's not easy to get right in the moment. Even magic, sad boy, Jojen can get his interpretation wrong, and that brings to my mind another manner figure, some another magical manner figure, someone we talked about reference before, where Bela tells Jon a dance with dragons. The vision was a true one. It was my reading that was false. I am as mortal as you, Jon Snow. All mortals err.
1: Exactly right. It's 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 not the fault is not in the prophecies. It's in the prophets. And even when you get a true glimpse of the future, even when the pattern is laid out before you, it's all filtered through your own biases and everything you bring to the table. And we're going to see that not only in Bran's story, but as you say with Melisandre's
0: story and all these magical characters going forward. Absolutely. So that about wraps up for our depth, for the depth section of this po- of this podcast. Let's transition to for Shad and Groundwick and talk about prophecy again. And so this prophecy, Jojen's prophecy, it does come true, just not how he expects. Reek, quotation marks, skins the Miller's boys in place of Bran and Rickon, and while the Stark boys do end up in the crypt, it's only to hide from Theon and Ramsay too.
1: This is a, a masterful bit of setup on George's part because you're, you're immediately engaged by the threat and you think, oh no, what's going to happen to Bran and Rickon? And then they vanish, and then it's reported that. That Theon and Reek have killed them, so you might believe it for a second, but then when you finally get all the information coming together about Bran's survival at the end of the book, what it really meant for them to be down there in the crypts, who really died in their place, you can see how how well George was setting up this magic trick. So again, this is this part of why I love the, uh, the, the reek Ramsey reveal, is all these all these little plot threads are tied so wonderfully together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we talked about the setup for the Ironborn attack on Winterfell already but we will also see Benfred Tallhart's campaign against the Ironborn raiders, which is mentioned in this chapter, come to a sad end in Theon three. So that won't be at Winterfell. That's set in an unnamed village in the Stony Shore. But it's just mentioned in passing. The Tallharts going up against Theon, and that's not going to end well for them at all.
0: It's. I remember that chapter just so well, so vividly about Theon remembering how they were singing as they were riding up to them, and then mm-hmm. he sprung the ambush on them and killed them. And how he leads uh, Benfred Tallhart to the shore and has him drowned to death. It's sad tragic it's also again we're we'll talk about this more when we get to theon's third chapter but we're we're really getting to theon reaching the other depths of his mor- morality in a song of ice and fire not the full extent we'll get that when he actually is in when he actually makes a, a new friend that that guy reek that we just encountered in this chapter so third bit of foreshadowing readers are left thinking that lady hornwood ate her own fingers rather than starve but there's <laughs> there's a potentially worse scenario that ramsey flayed her fingers and she bit them off to stop the pain which is similar to what Theon remembers trying to do after Ramsay flayed his fingers, some of them anyways. In Theon's case, he wasn't successful, he didn't have teeth at that time, and he begged Ramsay to cut his flayed fingers off. Horrifyingly, I think Danella may have been a bit more successful than Theon, again, maybe because she had more teeth than Theon did at that point in the story.
1: Mm, It's stomach-churning to contemplate, and yeah, by the time I'd gotten to dance, I'd kind of forgotten about Lady Hornwood, and then she's brought up right in the middle of that first horrifying Reek chapter in Dance and I remembered it all over again. It's just it's just skin-crawling stuff. So, Osha makes a reference in this chapter to an ice dragon with a blue star in the rider's eye. So, you gotta wonder, coming back after Season 8, is that foreshadow a white walker, someone with a, a blue eye yeah. riding a dragon? Or maybe that's Euron, because Euron is connected to both dragons and white walkers, and I've argued before that some of the Night King stuff in the show might be a version of Euron's plot, so... This also might just amount to nothing. It might just be a, a reference, a clever reference to George's story, the Ice Dragon, but it definitely jumps out of this chapter when you come back after Game of Thrones.
0: I agree. and I do, really do like that theory that Euron will be a dragon rider and will adapt the Night King role in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring or both at the same time. And it could also be too that this is foreshadowing a brand going north beyond the wall and heading up north is cause he's asking Osha about how to get to beyond the wall. And that that could be what George is hinting at here. But I do really do like that kind of theory and, and idea that you have here that this is foreshadowing something a bit more. Final little piece of foreshadowing is that Lewin's argument that vows made at sword point are not valid is going to come up in a big way in Jamie's story. When he thinks about the vows he made at sword point to Catlin regarding her daughters. Now, interestingly, Jamie decides he's going to keep his vows because he's going to find it hilarious that people are going to think that he's going to betray his vows. and said he's going to fulfill them just because it's funny. Although there's probably a little bit deeper going. But there's probably a little bit something deeper going on with Jamie's mentality in Storm of Swords.
1: Oh, sure. There's actual psychology at work here there's actual psychology at work there well here it's just the the tip of the spear in terms of again the combination with Ramsey where he he you know breaks savagely the the moors of his class but also tries to hold up their institutions to protect what he's done afterwards and that's that's, that's I think it's a clever way he's written as a character so shifting into our discussion for the episode there is a, a character kind of just a potentially evoked in passing here without even being mentioned but his, his 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 misdeeds ring all through the halls of Westeros and through the twins. The character in in uh, the character in mention is Blackwalder Frey. So the the question comes up: We have Stevron Frey being talked about dying in this chapter. Lewin delivers the news to Big and Little Walder that the heir to Lord Walder, their uncle Stevron Frey, has died, and it's supposedly of natural causes. But uh, <laughs> theories have emerged afterwards that that may have not been the case.
0: Absolutely yes, Blackwalder Frey and. Stevron, boy, so Big Water goes through the whole gambit of who is next in line after Sir Stevron dies. And a couple places down from Stevron Frey is our f- friend, Blackwater Frey, who is a um giant piece of shit. This guy is probably the worst Frey of the lot. And in my opinion, Blackwater totally murdered Stevron Frey. And I think this makes sense when we actually talk about Blackwater as a character. And I think it's... Uh, it's one of those minor theories in A Song of Ice and Fire that may never get any official confirmation, but it's a fun one to talk about. So let's talk a little bit about Blackwater and why that makes sense. I mean, Blackwater is a notoriously violent man that even Rob alternatively wants to murder, kill, rather, and is also a little bit afraid of. And he fights alongside of Rob out in the West. He climbs the walls of the Crag and takes the castle on Rob Stark's behalf, fighting alongside of Small John Umber. He participates in the Red Wedding, he kills Vance during the slaughter, and in the epilogue, Merit Frey thinks this about Blackwater. Blackwater was a man who took what he wanted, even his brother's wife. And as Merritt going to think about later on, he takes his cousin's wives, his brother's wives, his uncle's wives, and potentially even Walter Frey, Lord Walter Frey's wife as well. And then after the Red Wedding, he chases the Brotherhood without banners into the neck, then besieges Seagard and puts Patrick Malister in a noose in order to force his father, Jason, to surrender the castle. This proves successful, although the other Freys attempt to use this same methodology and attempting to get Riverrun to surrender, and Brendan Tully proves a little bit more formidable than Jason Malister. And though he doesn't appear on Page and Feast, Edwin, thinks, Edwin Frey thinks Blackwater is a danger to his role as heir to the twins. And though we know it was actually Stoneheart who kills Edwin's father, Ryman Frey, Edwin thinks the evidence points to Blackwater. My brother had a hand in this, I'll wager. He allowed the outlaws to escape after they murdered Meredith and Peter. And this is why, with our father dead, there's only me between Blackwater and the twins. So, violent, Blackwater sleeping with his brother's cousins and even his father's wives, coupled with his desire for the twins, leads me to think that Blackwater was definitely the type of guy who would murder the shit out of Stevan Frey and then be suspected, wrongly later on, of killing Ryman and who Edwin thinks of as a threat. He wants the twins and killing Stevron advances him one rung up the ladder. You were putting this really well in the mini episode. He, Blackwater is a rat among the, the rat pile in, in, at, among House Frey. Do you think that it's possible that Blackwater Walter will be victorious over Edwin Frey? Or maybe, thanks to Water Rivers, they're going to kill each other off to make room for your second favorite Frey, Lame Lothar Frey. Then maybe making room for Bigwater Frey, uh, as we talked about back in Bran's first chapter, which is just a tiny, tiny little version of Blackwater Frey.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have Edwin Frey has Walder Rivers on his side, who has been known as one of the more pugilistic and, and hostile Freys. And he's he's got his, his laser set on Black Walder, and Black Walder's got his laser set on him. Jamie says it, you know... You have your spies in Seagard, and he has his spies here and they're going to fight each other out to succeed their great-grandfather as the Lord of the Crossing. And we're seeing a real weakness in how House Frey gets set up here. Yeah, Lord Walder smashed it into Steveron's head as Merritt says in his epilogue on A Storm of Swords that family was family, blood is blood. You take care of everyone when I'm gone, you hear me? Mm-hmm. The problem is that doesn't seem to have been passed (laughs) on to literally anybody else in the family that, you know, Stevron apparently never passed it on to Ryman or maybe he he was just waiting around for Lord Walder to die before he started putting that to work. But he died too early and now there's no one left to take up that cause of somewhat worthy leadership in the twins. So now all the rats are coming in, all the vultures, all the feasting crows in the family and none of them are worse than Black Walder. He's consistently aggressive and off-putting. He mentions killing Jane after Rob marries her in order to free him up against once more to marry a Frey. Uh, he's constantly, as, as you say, just creating hostility and division within his own family. He's a cancer cell in, in House Frey. and. Uh, I'm inclined to think Edwin and Blackwalder probably kill each other off because, again, you have Walder Rivers there who could actually put up a fight on Edwin's behalf against Blackwalder. Edwin is the older one. Not everyone seems to like Blackwalder very much. (laughs) You you have all these fray pairs, and I I feel like they're designed to, to, to kill each other. And as you say, that would definitely make room for lame Lothar. Uh, who is, you know, as he says in this the epilogue to A Storm of Swords, that they are fortunate that Edwin and Black Walder hate each other more than they hate the rest of them. And that feels to me like foreshadowing that that's what Lothar is planned. Black Walder and Edwin, you're going to kill each other off. And then I will emerge as, as, as the compromise candidate. And, it, you know, if Big Walder is indeed Lothar's protégé, as I theorized back in Bran's first chapter in this book, it makes perfect sense that he's keeping an eye on this just as Lothar is, keeping track on, okay, now it's Ryman, and how are Ryman's kids going to Gonna, gonna gonna duke this out. And Little Walder, Little Walder just assumes he's gonna bluff his way through and hasn't <laughs> memorized things as much, you know. But, but Lothar and Big Walder are the ones that kind of know where the stakes are. And this is why I think for House Frey is interesting, is you get each individual Frey gives you this, just this little glimpse at this, this, this horrible hive that's just turning in on itself constantly. And it's, it's even as they spread across Westeros and feast and dance, trying to get their fingers in every pot from Dairy to Riverrun to White Harbor. There's always this sense of horrible fragility. And you can see that with Black Walter as effective as he is let loose on their enemies, he's also just as much a poison within House Frey. So that's this is, this is you know, as I said earlier in the chapter, you see why the Starks are going to last because they really feel for each other and they really love each other. And the Frey is for all the short-term advantage they can get. The fact that they hate each other this much,
0: this is why they won't last. Absolutely. And, you know, people as far and wide as... You know, Cersei's small council in A *Feast for Crows*. They talk about, now well, maybe we can you know kill off a bunch of the Freys and blame them for the Red Wedding. Like e- even as House Frey seems ascendant in, in the series, they're very much going to a massive downturn. All of the shittery that they get into in *Clash*, if Blackwater killed Steffon Frey, and especially in *Storm* and *Feast*, where they perform the Red Wedding and do all sorts of terrible things in the Riverlands and beyond. These family, th- this family is in for a very rude awakening in the form of the threat of. The Brotherhood banners as a red wedding 2.0, as many have theorized. Also, just killing themselves too. They're they're a threat to each other, and that again, like you were saying, it really distinguishes them from House Stark, who desperately wants their family to be back together to fight for the common cause for the good of all humanity. And again, the Starks are not perfect. There is that class structure which is still in place for House Starks, we talked talked about in Brand's third chapter. But it still means that they are the, the Starks end up being more heroic, more. Focused on long-term good for themselves and also for the realm as a whole and all the people that are living within the realm. Houses like the phrase aren't meant to last, and they can't last by killing their way to the top. Even if there's hundreds of phrase there, even a big water phrase, as you were saying, is like 352nd in line. There's 352nd people that are ahead of him. That doesn't last. It's the mentality that the phrase have doesn't lead to longevity for their house. It doesn't lead to their Having a flourishing. And I think that's what distinguishes the Starks is that their mentality, their common good, their communitarian purposes allow them to sustain themselves, sustain the North, and keep Westeros alive. And I think they will ultimately at the end of the series. Well said, sir. Agreed. Thank you. So. I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of a Clash Kings brand five. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts.
1: You can check out our Patreon at patreoncom natacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at natacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at natacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at
0: poorquentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics
1: We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Meribald the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Lady Brit, Bastard Mistress of Heron Hall. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Tim, the Knight, who was guided by voices. Lady Dilsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way of Course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam K. Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Boole and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord J. Manderley Baker of the Fray Pies, and Septon, Merryful Head of Hair. Thank you so much to our high
0: lords and ladies. Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. So, join us next week as we ride to Storm's End to watch the Baratheon brothers face off in a Clash Kings Catlin 3 And given current circumstances, we have decided on the Nodicast podcast that we'll be doing all of our episodes while this great quarantine in America and beyond is occurring as live streams. You can come join us on our YouTube channel to watch us do Catlin 3, Catlin 4, and maybe even a Patreon episode too. A bonus episode so you guys can watch us do that episode live.
1: I'm looking forward to it very much. So our first one of those is going to be doing A Clash of Kings, Catlin 3, Stannis and Renly facing off at Storm's End. And we're going to be doing that on uh, on March 23rd. That is today for listening to this on the general release date. That's March 23rd at 8.30 p.m. So we'll be showering you with links and, and, and hyping that up a bunch, I assure you. So we will see you
0: there. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us if you're one of our patrons. And we will see you guys literally next time.